Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And it's our holiday episode. This is and true. And I picked a book that kind of sucks. <laughs> well, you know, I had I had prepared a little musical ditty because... <laughs> oh, had you? Well, this is based on, you know, the Christmas carol, so... Oh, yeah. Na, 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 the weather na, na, outside na, na, na. is frightful, <laughs> but inside it's so delightful. Na, 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 and since we've no place to go, na, na. we're going to talk about Let It Snow. <laughs> it's the only reason why you would talk about Let It Snow. Right. But I would like to say uh, that I think my singing is better than the singing in the film. Because uh, that was atrocious. Also, really enjoyed that the character who randomly starts singing the film is not, in fact, the character who is randomly a singer professionally. <laughs> I did not understand that at all. We're going to cast someone and say that they're a singer, and then we're going to make this other teen star who has no capacity for singing. Yeah, sure. Let's give them a musical number that goes on forever. And also apparently playing the piano identical to playing a massive church organ. Yeah, when, when he started to do that, I literally turned to Brian and said, I don't think a piano is the same as a church organ. I don't think you can just sit down and begin to play it. I don't think so either. I mean, prove me wrong, internet. I don't know. But I guess, should we do our homework first? Oh, sure. Fine. (laughs) My homework is a holiday request for our listeners. Oh, I see. So you had nothing, but you're going to turn it into something. Yeah, no, totally, absolutely. In okay, fairness, okay. though, yeah. I had nothing like four days ago and decided this was how I was going to roll with it. So it's not okay. even a last-minute decision. Oh, okay. Lean into <laughs> it. Let's go for it. Uh, it is Christmas Eve, listeners, the day this episode drops. Mm-hmm. And if you celebrate the holidays, it's a gift-giving time of year. If you don't celebrate the holidays, maybe you're looking for something to inspire some warmth and cheer. Mm-hmm. And either way, we would like to, and mostly me because Joe didn't know I was going to do this, encourage you to leave us a review wherever you download this podcast. So iTunes rate and review or whatever podcatcher you're using right now. Just go and let people know. It helps folks find the show uh, and it gives us a real little jolt of Christmas cheer. And you're listening to this on Christmas Eve. If you go and do that review right now, we'll find it on Christmas Day. And how nice. How nice would that be? That'd be so sweet. Right? Just waking up all bleary-eyed in the morning, (laughs) Christmas Day, rolling on to the interwebs and saying, wow, there's less toxic masculinity here (laughs) and there's more kind-hearted reviews of our podcast. You, ladies and gentlemen, can single-handedly change our experience of the internet for yeah. one whole day. <laughs> Just for the one, though. After yeah, no, that, it has to go back that. to normal. <laughs> Absolutely going to reset to a horrible hellscape. But yeah. before that... <laughs> yeah. Embracing the warmth of the season. The cheer. I am joking, but I am also... It really, the reason yet. why everybody asks you to rate and review their podcast is because it genuinely does help, especially on iTunes with the way that podcasts get served to folks. So if you've reviewed a couple of podcasts that someone else really likes, then it shows them our podcast. So helps folks find the show. And yeah, as Joe and I have talked about before, the real pleasure of doing this show is knowing that folks are listening. So please consider leaving a review this mm-hmm. holiday season. 
Ah, oh, so sweet. <laughs> Do you have less self-serving homework, Joe? Uh, uh, yes and no. <laughs> so I'm going to start with a quick piece of listener feedback because we heard back from somebody with regard to our Schick episode. So I thought yeah. I would share it while yeah, it's still timely. So good. So I just wanted to give a shout out to Elma, who is a German listener. So hey, all you German listeners... We know of at least three of you, and we're very excited. It is actually super exciting. <laughs> it really is, because I often feel like we only get heard from people in North America, which I think is a weird assumption, because obviously the internet is a worldwide phenomenon, and people can access podcasts everywhere. They and have yet... the internet all over the world now? Shocking. Yes. Whoa. <laughs> I think I sometimes forget that there might be interest from people living outside of a North American context to listen to a couple of Canadians with funny accents who say a boot. We also do, just by virtue of the fact that the way adaptation culture works and we're in North America, we do primarily talk about North American and British texts. There's no doubt about that. This is true. Although I do love the fact that people will occasionally send us in recommendations that are not from North American or British texts. And we love recommendations that diversify our reading in all sorts of ways. But mm -hmm. go on, Joe, with okay. the listener mail. Uh, you may remember, Brenna, that we asked about, or we were talking about Chick in the context of the coming-of-age narrative, and we've talked a couple of times about whether or not books have connected with their audiences at different times in their lives, and whether it's a specific regional context. So in the case mm -hmm. of Chick, we were wondering, you know, it was so popular, 2.5 million copies sold in Germany. So... Alma has written that their generation was the one that was in school when shit came out, and a lot of people, including themselves, had to read it in class, or they got it as a gift from their parents. And apparently all of the adults loved the book, thought it was perfect YA, and Alma writes that their friends and them did not like it all that much because it felt unrealistic and weird for teenage life and not fantastical <laughs> enough in other places like Harry Potter or The Hunger Games. I could see that. I mean, some of what we loved about it was the sort of pastoral aspects of the sort of rural journey. And mm -hmm. yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Well, and I think the context will always change if you're assigned a book in class or if you're given it by an adult, like, hey, I really think that this is going to connect with you. And as a teenager, I feel like your immediate reaction would be to say, do not tell me what to do. Do not tell me how to feel. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know me, mom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm different from you. You're antiquated. You're out of touch. <laughs> so Alma does write that now that they are older, they can see what the adults liked about it. But as a teenager, it was difficult uh, connecting with the text. And then Alma leaves us a question that I think we're going to address in a future minisode about what makes a YA novel good. Does it have to have morals and important topics? Is it the writing? Is it opinions? Who classifies it as a worthwhile text? And how does that happen? I love that question. And I also think, oof, it opens up this huge can of worms about, I think one of the things Alma writes in that email is like, what matters more? Yeah. Adult perception of literary merit or like youth enjoyment? And that's mm -hmm. a huge question, right? That is a minefield, and I would love to talk about that for sure. Because we are still, it's interesting, we we exist within this marketplace where, like, adults make all the decisions about what gets 
published mm-hmm. and purchased and adults are doing most of the writing and adults are doing most of the analysis and critiquing. So yeah, it's it's a thorny question that may lead to us determining our own irrelevance, Joe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like we've we've touched on it a couple of times because we've wondered whether or not a book works for teenagers. Yes. Or if we have aged ourselves out of it and as a result, we have difficulty connecting to it. Yes. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so all this to say, Alma, thank you so much for writing in and giving us a perspective because, yeah, I mean, you can look at reviews and publication stats on the internet, but that doesn't actually tell you how people feel about things. So it's always really interesting to hear from people firsthand. That's exactly true. Yeah, no, I really, uh, I really love that perspective. I was grateful for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I do have another piece of homework news. I sort of addressed it on last week's episode so i had talked about how i had hoped to be seeing the new little women but that the timing hadn't worked out and in the week between recording the timing has worked out so i can now report back on the 2019 version (gasps) of little women okay go for it i heard they changed the ending Yes. Okay. So this new version, which is coming out just in time for the holidays, so it's entirely possible that it may be out as of the time listeners are hearing this, or it's coming out on Christmas Day. So this new version makes a couple of fairly smart adaptation decisions. And Brenna, I think this is one that you are going to very much enjoy because really Greta Gerwig, who wrote and directed it, addresses a lot of the issues that we had with not just the adaptation, but also the book itself. So one of the big things is that the story is, instead of happening chronologically, so you start with the girls when they're young and then they age up, like in the book, the film actually starts with Joe in New York trying to get her writing published. And then it flashes back to seven years before... And then the two timelines run concurrently so that you have things that are happening in the present time being reflections of what's happened in the past and vice versa. So like the Beth dying scene, it happens concurrently where she's dying in the present, and I'm using quotation as in the future timeline, and then she's also getting sick for the first time and barely recovering so that you get the contrast where she lives in the past and you see Joe come down the stairs and there she is in the kitchen and it's happy tears and then that gets immediately contrasted with the exact same shot, only she's not there in the present and Marmee is just crying. Oh, weird. It's really, really effective because the other thing is that you're actually introduced to Friedrich immediately. He's the first person that Joe meets. Oh. So the film opens and she's interacting with him. So he is, is actually, actually presented. The... Sorry. Sorry. I was just going to say that's the, the 2018 version does the same thing. Yeah, but he. I mean, badly. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I mean, in this new version, he's played by a not much older man. He's oh, nice. clearly a little bit older, but he's also super hot. He's yes, randomly French and not German. Right. Oh, he's French. Yeah. Oh, all right. And he's like young and hot. Well, that's something. So he's just presented as an alternative. The relationship between Joe and Lori is very much sibling-esque like they're having fun they're getting into trouble but there isn't the same Winota Christian Bale romantic 
undertones like right so you can see them maybe getting on together but they also don't really have the chemistry for it right so when she turns him down it actually feels more genuine like no it just isn't there for her and he is presented as a playboy and very flighty so i mispronounce timothy (laughs) i mispronounced timothy chalamet's name last week i realized oh did you yeah but uh i would not have noticed of course you wouldn't (laughs) But Timothy Chalamet plays Laurie as a bit of an idiot man-child, like he needs to grow up. Sure. Which makes all the Europe stuff play all that better because he's not just acting wounded because Joe has hurt his pride. This is the way that he's always been. Right. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. The other interesting choice that they make is that Florence Pugh plays Amy the entire way through. So they don't have a younger actress. (laughs) So they put her in pigtails and she acts petulant. And then when she's in Europe, she's proper. She's got her hair up and she's acting more like a lady. So we so, don't have the incredible aging Amy. Mm-mm. So it That's doesn't nice. feel awkward where you're just like, Ugh, now I'm trying to get connected with this new girl. And then, yes, the ending. I'm not going to spoil anything because I really would encourage people to go and check it out. It's a very enjoyable film. Like it's a good adaptation, but it's also just a really well done film. Mm-hmm. I think it's really going to connect well with its target audience of young women and probably families. But the ending, let's just say it has its cake and eats it too. So it's giving you both. If you're looking for a romance and a happy ending, it's giving you that. And it's also giving you an independent Joe who is doing her own thing. And Hmm. I'm not going to explain how that happens, but it really worked for me. Okay. All right. Yeah. So that's uh, Little Women by Greta Gerwig, 2019. Okay. That's fascinating. Okay. So shall we tackle some Let It Snow? Yeah, let's tackle some Let It Snow. So Let It Snow is a 2008 Christmas novel or Christmas collection of three novellas. Mm Mm-hmm interconnected anthology yes and they are all interconnected through the characters it all takes place in one small town the town of gracetown which is in north carolina kind of importantly actually in the collection and then uh switched to illinois for no reason in the because this town gets a massive snowstorm on christmas eve north carolina doesn't get a ton of snow is sort of part of the like we've all been massively caught off guard this is a massive amount of snow we don't yeah, have the infrastructure for this yeah, yeah so they move it to illinois and it's kind of like huh all right I, i'm okay okay this would be business <laughs> as usual also the cgi snowflakes are unconvincing they're so bad anyway it doesn't matter uh for this part because we're talking about the novellas so the right, three yeah. stories in the collection are the jubilee express by maureen johnson a cheertastic christmas miracle by john green and the patron saint of pigs by lauren miracle and by far the strongest of the stories is the first one maureen johnson's mm-hmm. So I'm going to kind of do a like a real brief rundown of each of the plots, Joe, and then sure. we can talk about what we want to talk about in relation to them. It's been a very popular seller. It's handy to have a YA book with three relatively big names uh, that you can sell at Christmas, that you sure. can put next to the cash register at Chapters, that has mm-hmm. a bright, shiny cover. Although the cover I had of my edition is much prettier than the one that uh, I see. The generic boring one? Yeah. Yeah. 
So the version that I have the cover of was like post Will Grayson, Will Grayson for John Green, I'm pretty sure, because it had like a very Will Grayson, Will Grayson sort of sparkly cover, but it was snowflakes instead of sparkles. So it's very pretty. Okay. Anyway, very mm. eye-catching. Uh, it's $8.99. It's at the cash. You might as well pick it up. So it's been a very popular seller for that reason, I'm pretty sure. So the first story, The Jubilee Express, this is by Maureen Johnson. It follows the story of Jubilee, who lives in Richmond, Virginia, and she is sort of a relatively high-achieving young woman, but she feels really like sort of like nothing because she's in a relationship with the perfect boyfriend Noah Mm -hmm. and like perfect in quotation marks he's the perfect student he's the perfect school athlete he gets along with everybody but he's not really very kind to her and he doesn't really value her at all it's very obvious early on that he is not right for her she has just convinced herself of this exactly so Maureen Johnson's books are very well known for the kind of odd quirks like teenagers growing up in families with weird quirks and in this family yeah the weird (laughs) in this family the weird quirk is that the parents collect floby santa village figurines so small collectibles like christmas scene figurines and in fact uh these are very limited they have become more limited in recent years and her parents are arrested and jailed after a riot at the floby factory they are branded part of the Floby Five, which I kind of love because that is exactly something that dumb newspapers <laughs> yeah. and websites would do yeah. to try to turn something that is not a news story into it. something that people would want to read. So Jubilee obviously is not going to be allowed to spend Christmas by herself, and her parents' lawyer slash friend puts her on a train to Florida to visit her grandparents. She's not going to get to Florida by Christmas Eve, by Christmas Day. She's traveling Mm-mm. all night Christmas Eve. Um, but also that's another reason why it actually matters that it's North Carolina and not Illinois. Anyway, it doesn't matter. So um, the train hits this massive pile of snow and doesn't derail but it's stuck it can't move anymore and they have to turn off the power on the train to conserve energy and it's kind of feels like it's going to be a bit of a lord of the fly situation so jubilee pieces out um she Mm -hmm. she gets off the train and she walks through this thick snow to a like a waffle house um Mm -hmm. when she's there she meets a few characters but most importantly she meets Stuart, who takes her home so that she can dry off and call her boyfriend and do all this stuff she falls in a stream on the way. It's very meat cute. We find out that Stuart has recently had his heart broken by a cheerleader, which is important because John Green writes the lengthy story about the cheerleaders. <sighs> anyway, they end up together. I mean, really, yeah. that's that's that story. I was going to say, if you're going to do this for two more times, I'm going to have to start cutting you down. No, and it's, I think it's the cutest one. I think it's the, I mean, all of them are conventional romances. There's nothing unconventional happening in any of these stories particularly. But I think this one has the most uh, interesting character development and the, the best dialogue. So I like it the best of the three. Yes, I think the Jubilee is an interesting character. I enjoy spending time with her. I like that Stuart he's presented as a jewish guy whose mom enforces christmas as a thing that they do to kind of fit in because they are one of only two jewish families in the entire town yeah like this this story just has a lot of personality it does it does benefit from being the first one because you're excited to dig into this collection yeah so she's setting the tone she's setting the stake she's introducing some of the characters but it's also just it's an enjoyable short story read Mm -hmm. you're getting everything that you want it's well told well paced and then we're out yeah 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 and i like the way Stuart is presented to us in this story as 
not without his own damage or whatever, but mm-hmm. he's the what makes him a a romantic possibility in this story is that he's the opposite of Noah in that he actually cares about what Jubilee's interested in and he's yes. not just trying to sort of tick a box in terms of my perfect high school experience involves a perfect girlfriend, right? Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, he's he's deeply lovable. And I think that's something that the third story sort of misses. It's like that you actually have to care about both people in the romance for the romance to matter. Or anyone. Or anyone. Yeah, no, the last the last story is... Anyway, it's fine. Okay, so the second... It's garbage. Yes. Okay. So the second story <laughs> is A Cheer-tastic Christmas Miracle by John Green. And uh, spoiler alert, if you don't like... Um, John Green? Yeah, and you won't like this story. It's got nope. everything. It's got not that kind of girl. Mm-hmm. It's got casual late 2000s ableist language. So does Lauren Miracles. It's got... Uh, everything that has bugged us about every John Green book we've read so far. And I I say us, I mean, obviously all this stuff bugs Joe more, Mm -hmm. but I can recognize it's there. But when you compress it into the length of a novella, it is a lot. Yeah, because there's no escaping it. No. And particularly, like all of these stories take place over the course of less than 24 hours. Yeah. In this case, it's really maybe a couple of hours. Yeah. Like, it, it's an all-nighter. The first story is, like, Christmas Eve into the whole of Christmas Day. Uh, the last story is basically Christmas Day into Boxing Day. I guess you guys don't have that in the States. Whatever you call December 26th. And then the middle, the, the John Green one is, yeah, it's, like, it's an all-nighter Christmas Eve. I think it ends at, like, 3 a.m. Yeah. So it just ends up being, I like the wacky hijinks in this story like this is kind of where the most action in the book happens Mm -hmm. but the characters are also the most insufferable in terms of the tropey john greenness yeah so this story is about tobin and his two best friends the duke uh who is a tomboyish girl whose real name is angie but who everybody calls the duke and um spoiler alert she's going to recognize that her own femininity is of value over the course of this story right um and jp that's her arc um (laughs) so it's interesting because the book is really interested in the whiteness of this town and the figures who exist on the margins of it so we met in the first story Stuart, who is one of only two jewish characters in town we'll meet the other one in the last story and in this story we meet jp who is one of only two korean characters in the town so and we've already met kwan in the first in the story. first story he mans the waffle house that's right and then the uh there's there's an indigenous character who we meet very briefly in the first story who comes back in the third i mean it's actually something i really like in all of the stories is this um the sort of texturing of a small town right like mm-hmm. the easy thing to do would be to make the small town all white the more interesting and realistic thing to do is to recognize a that people exist who are not and b that that life experience is different which is probably mm-hmm. the only thing that the lauren miracle story does really well yeah but not from the perspective of the person you actually want to hear it from which is annoying <laughs> not so much yeah the protagonist okay. anyway um but we're still in john we're green, still in though. john greenville okay so they get the call so on the train with jubilee had been a team of cheerleaders and they also once they see that jubilee has successfully migrated to the waffle house they do the same thing so this story opens with kwan calling tobin to tell him that there are a group of cheerleaders at the waffle house and they want to play twister and they're telling all the other teenage boys in town that whichever group of boys gets there first with the twister board game is going to be allowed to get in Otherwise, 
that like that's how they're making it anyway. There's it, that happens over several stages, but who could care? The problems just begin immediately. Oh yeah, this idea that hey. Whichever group of boys yeah. arrives first gets the cheerleaders. Oh, yeah. And they will be sexually available to you based on nothing. And this is pointed out, to John Green's credit, within the text, obviously only by a female character. Yes. And only after she has been desexualized and made fun of repeatedly. I think John Green really struggles with trying to depict teenage boys as they are and recognizing that as they are is troublesome and it's Mm -hmm. like he can't he gets so stuck in the former that the latter is always so either ham-fisted or the sole emotional labor of usually the sole female character who we get any perspective on yes yeah who is inevitably not the main character inevitably So we're stuck in the mindset of just Gross a horny, boy. stupid boy. Yeah. Yep. Um, and obviously over the course of this story, Tobin realizes that he actually has feelings for Duke. Of course. Which he realizes because she is inter- no, she's actually not interested in another boy, but she's going to the dance with another boy who actually sees her as a girl, which is meaningful to her, which he's surprised by. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have to get across town basically in their car, which isn't easy to do they crash they lose a tire then there's sort of like a chase on foot across town to get to the waffle house in time and yeah it's the story with the most kinetic energy for sure mm-hmm. yeah. um and parts of it are really fun i think yes. that green is very good at writing a sort of caper story yes but the characterization is really upsetting anyway they get to the waffle house and duke isn't there and tobin finds her outside the waffle house and she's crying Or they get there and then she disappears and then she's crying and then they have their like, oh, wait, no, actually. We both like each other. We both like each other. Anyway, end of story. So then the third one, Mm -hmm. Patron Scene of Pigs by Lauren Miracle, is the story of Addie. We meet Addie very briefly in the first story because uh, Stuart goes through a really traumatic breakup at a Starbucks and Addie is the Starbucks barista in that scene. Mm -hmm. This story mentions the word starbucks conservatively seven times a page yes this part of the book is brought to you by starbucks please go to starbucks buy the soundtrack and possibly this book at the starbucks this podcast is now brought to you by starbucks it's one of the most distracting things and it's interesting because i have for a long time defended the use of brand names in books because people speak in brand names and i i find it and it's distract- distracting when you make up fake ones it's distracting yeah. when you make up fake ones it's distracting when they do something quote-unquote cute like so i went to my local corporate owned coffee bar or whatever like that's gross wah, wah, too wah, it's wah. dumb but this was like oh my god stop saying the word starbucks like i don't think starbucks employees say starbucks as much as this girl does well, and even defending it, like there's a whole conversation about the sizes oh and isn't God. it so wacky oh. and no, we don't call the muffins venti because oh, they're all one size. Like it's just painful. this book honestly feels like, you know where she wrote it. She <laughs> maybe worked there as a teenager or as a young adult. And this is the most important part of this book is the Starbucks. Of this third story. It's weird. There's yeah. a there's a half Starbucks mentioned in the first story because that's where the breakup takes place. And I can't remember if they mention it in the second one. But yeah, the third one is like, oh God, please stop talking about Starbucks. It's not helped by the fact that Addie is one of the She's most... She's unbearable. She's very grating. And not in the like, oh, we're subverting tropes about femininity by like mm-hmm. not having to make her likable. She's just an awful human being. Yeah. She's just super gross. 
and I hated reading about her. So her story is that she has just broken up with her boyfriend, Jeb. Mm-hmm. They had fallen for each other, but Addie is awful to him, basically constantly. So, for example, she makes him a playlist for their anniversary, and she's mad that he doesn't give her anything. And so she, he goes... It's not and, even their anniversary, isn't it? Their six-month yeah, anniversary? Yeah, it's their six-month anniversary. But so those he's like, I didn't know this was a I thing. I didn't know we were doing this as a thing. <laughs> Yes, it's not a thing, people. Don't do that. It's totally a thing in high school. If your relationship's only going to last eight months, you probably should celebrate the six-month mark. Yeah, right. Fine. But, but uh, so he goes to, like, the local, like, five-and-dime store, and he wins her a necklace from this, like, quarter game machine thing. And she's mm-hmm. like, ugh, it's just a necklace from, like, a stupid vending machine. Anybody could get this, and it probably only cost him $10. Yeah, which for him is a ton of money because he is his family is broke. Oh, I was so frustrated because <laughs> everyone who listens to the show knows how much I really appreciate a frank conversation about class in a YA novel and how we get so mm-hmm. little of it. And this comes, from the pers- this comes from a perspective I don't want to hear it from. Much like, so her boyfriend Jeb is the one indigenous kid in town, and one of her yes. best friends is one of the only jewish characters in town and mm-hmm. through addy's perspective we see how marginalized they are those two people are for those characteristics in this town and also how marginalized jeb is for his poverty but yes. i don't care what addy thinks about that frankly i would love to hear jeb's story or dory's story mm-hmm. yeah and part of the problem with this is that this story is modeled on A Christmas Carol. Yeah. So she is terrible. Yeah. And the whole point of this particular novella is for her to figure out that she is an awful, selfish individual and yep. she needs to be more mindful of other people via uh, It's a Wonderful Life, Angel Gets Its Wings kind of divine intervention. Yeah. But that also means, again, because it's a short story and it's happening all in the space of basically a morning, Yeah, we're just spending a lot of time with a terrible character and... It's unbelievable that she comes to the realization that she does in the short amount of time that she does. Also, it's about 100 pages long. It's about eight chapters, nine chapters. Fully Mm -hmm. the first four chapters of this novella, she's in her bedroom. Yeah. It's the most static story. And it's so slow and you don't like her. So it's one thing to be sort of wallowed in with a character you're learning about and you're really curious about. It's Mm -hmm. another thing to be stuck wallowing with an egregious human being. And that's what this book is. And it's also very difficult coming on the back of the John Green story, which featured the most kinetic energy. Like we just got through watching people avoid getting pegged by a keg on their sliding route down to a Waffle House. Here, let's spend 50 so odd pages whining and reflecting and looking at pictures on an iPhone. Oh my God, the pictures on the iPhone scene is longer than the icebergs melting. Right. So the lesson she has to learn is to care about other people, to put other people first, because she's wildly Mm self-involved. And so she goes to work at Starbucks uh, the morning. I'm sorry, where was it? It was at Starbucks. It's easy to miss, I know. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The morning after Christmas. And she has been tasked with one thing, which is she, at 9 a.m., is supposed to go across the street, take her break, go across the street, and pick up the teacup pig that she and her friend Dory have bought for their other friend for Christmas. 
Tegan, who we will Tegan. not factor in because she's not in the movie and she's really not a character in the book either. Mm, she's not interesting enough for me to remember her name. So, nope. spoiler alert, she doesn't do that. So at 9 <sighs> o'clock... Shocking. I know. So at 9 o'clock, she's like, oh, I was supposed to go across the street. And she turns to her boss and she's like, can I take my break now? And her boss is like, okay, just serve this one customer. And it's this person who recurs in all the stories, this person who a man in the book a woman in the movie joan cusack in the movie um who drapes himself herself in tinfoil mm-hmm. but never explains why and uh, they have like a brief exchange and it he says something that she feels is like super insightful and so she loses track of the fact that she was supposed to go and get the pig and instead like wallows in her own self-pity for a while mm-hmm. and then about an hour later she asks again if she can take her break and uh her boss is like yeah she's like holding a dirty milk steamer and her boss is like yeah but clean that milk steamer before you leave <laughs> like i don't know Whatever. what you're doing and so she turns around to clean it and she gets distracted and the tap gets like stuck on or if there's a burst pipe or something and she's not paying attention and the water overflows the store and her manager is like you know what actually just get out so she goes to the back room and you think oh now she's gonna go get the pig but instead she <laughs> calls dory to like <laughs> this unload. is actually my favorite part of the story <laughs> <laughs> dory's the best part of the story by a mile so she calls dory to unload about like her bad day and dory's like have you gotten the pig and she's like what why are you even talking to me go get the pig <laughs> She's like, no, you don't understand. I'm about to do that. I've just had a really hard morning and I need to talk to you about it. And Dory's like, get the pig. <laughs> uh, and she's like, I'm so sick of you always calling me up with a crisis. You're so self-involved. Blah, 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 blah. Go get the pig. And she hangs up on her. So she goes across right. the street to get the pig. And spoiler alert, the pig is gone because it got yes. sold half an hour ago. Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, blah, 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 there's a boy and a drive and such. And as it turns out, care? it got yeah. sold to this old lady who has decided she's going to like masquerade as a Christmas angel. Mm-hmm. So she bought the pig to make sure that it was safe, which apparently she's just willing to drop 200 bucks on the random barista to make sure that like everything's I don't, fine. I don't, I don't, I just don't. Anyway, no. <laughs> she gets the pig back and she promises that she's always going to come over once a week for a tea and coffee date with this old lady, which... We have absolutely no reason to believe she's actually going to keep this tea and coffee date with the old lady. No. And let's be honest. This woman might be experiencing some dementia. Like she's presented as a fun Christmas holiday character in the vein of like that kooky older person who helps you on your journey. Yeah. But in the context of this entire book, which has featured absolutely no magical elements outside of romance or adults <laughs> like we get like right. three adults in the whole book right yeah it's... and two of them like one of them wears tinfoil yeah and then the other is this christmas angel lady who comes across as i'm sorry fully crazy yeah yeah miracle doesn't do the work to make us care about anything Mm -hmm. that's happening and so i'm like i always get to that scene and i'm like yeah there's absolutely zero chance that you're ever going to follow through on the promise you just made this old lady but whatever and then she goes back to the starbucks and that's when the book's sort of climax happens in that all all the characters who know each other from different contexts realize it in this starbucks brought to you by starbucks christmas brought to you by starbucks Mm -hmm. and then for fully no reason at all addy and jeb get back together deeply infuriating to me and we've gotten a glimpse of it because in the first story jeb also makes it to the waffle house and he seems very distraught that the snow is preventing him from making a particular date so we learned that addy had intended to meet with him at a particular time 
at the Starbucks. Yeah. And he didn't make it. And that was why she went crazy and she cut her hair and she dyed it pink and she's having her crises. But the end of the book suggests that, you know what, he would have actually made it. But it's not satisfying because we don't like Addie. We don't actually feel like she's changed. But also, she's so clearly undeserving of this nice guy who we also don't really know very much about. No. We see him again really briefly in the second story as well because he says, hey, Tobin, if you see Addie, tell her that I'm coming. Mm-hmm. which Tobin promptly forgets to pass on until the very end of the book. Yeah, so this story is just a mess. It's the messiest. And I think we're meant to be excited that we once again get to see everybody. So we get to see yeah. Tobin and the Duke, and they're all happy and cutesy in the early stages of their romance. Stuart and Jubilee. Right, Stuart and Jubilee are also happy in their like and all the basically town? just two new romances and then one that we don't care about and the town is really invested in Stuart's romance like that he's gotten over chloe is really meaningful to apparently everyone i do kind of like that because it feels <laughs> like such a weird small town thing it where does, everybody true. is so invested in everybody else's love life like oh i was really rooting for Stuart because <laughs> chloe broke his heart i think i like Stuart and jubilee the best uh yes. because they are the most fully articulated characters and I think I like Tobin and the Duke. The Duke, Tobin and Angie, in spite of how poorly articulated they are. And then I just think the last story is there is no payoff because it's unearned. I really, mm-hmm. really, really dislike the protagonist. I don't actually want her to get back with Jeb. I'm annoyed no. when she does, and yes. I don't feel like her quote unquote redemption is um, honest at all. No, it almost feels like it needed to be a little bit longer. Yeah. Some of the events needed to be shortened or decreased so that we could actually pay off things more in the end, like maybe stretch that story out and be like, I didn't get back together with Jeb. I started to volunteer at the... Silver Sneakers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's a band full of elderly people who come into the Starbucks. Starbucks. Every day. Starbucks. Buy buy your coffee now. Starbucks. (laughs) Starbucks. And... I haven't had coffee yet. I'm talking about Starbucks this much. It's actually a little bit. Oh, little wow. Bit yeah. Bad husband alert. Because usually you get your <laughs> coffee delivered midway through this podcast. I but know, but yeah. Well, as as you can hear, maybe potentially depending on how well Joe edits this episode, listeners, the toddler slept until quite late and then woke mm-hmm. up. So he's had his hands full. Yeah. I can understand why this book has done well. I mean, I don't. I'm not familiar with the other two writers Mm -hmm. outside of John Green, Mm -hmm. but I think you eloquently stated that it is the kind of book that people can just grab and know, okay, I recognize these authors. This is festive. Mm -hmm. It's right next to the cash. This makes a great stocking stuffer, and Mm -hmm. it's completely bland and inoffensive. So I can understand all of that, but also this may be the flimsiest of books that we have covered on this podcast. Absolutely, it is the flimsiest of books. And it is the boringest of adaptations. (laughs) Was that your cue that you want to transition? I do, yeah. Well, unless you have more to say about this book, but I can't imagine that you do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we, we can get into it a little bit more. Okay. Okay. This place is beautiful. It's like the perfect holiday card. Snow hides a lot. It's like the spanks of weather. You can do a lot worse in this place, trust me. Tell her that you like her. And I've noticed since I was five years old, it's not that easy. You just have to tell her you want the same relationship plus boning. Tobin! 
what's up? Yeah, I'm up good. See you downstairs when you found a bra. Slept on my Christmas Eve bash. Come one, come all. Boom. He's gonna break up with me. He would have to be the dumbest human being on earth to do that. Like, dumber than the people who blow on ice cream before they eat it. That girl and I have a thing. Have you ever been with someone and you stay up until like 4 a.m. just talking about everything and you're just like, I can't believe I get to exist at the same time as you? No, but like, I'm really happy for you. I realize that life is just a bunch of stuff you can't control. But is that a bad thing? Yeah. Anything can happen. Good, bad, anything. <laughs> All right. So, 2013's Let It Snow is a Hallmark Christmas movie starring Candace Cameron Bure <laughs> as an executive who examines her company new property and prepares a presentation to transform the Rustic Lodge into a new hotspot. So, a Brenna, choice. I'm surprised that we went with this pairing. <laughs> I was going to yeah. see how far I could get into that. Are you <laughs> suggesting that Let It Snow is a fairly generic Christmas movie slash book title? <laughs> well, I also thought it was doubly funny because listeners, you may or may not know this, but <laughs> Brenna and I have actually co-authored a scathing takedown of Hallmark <laughs> yes, Christmas movies, and it'll be coming out in an academic book that's getting published in the spring. But I did think it was ironic that, <laughs> A, there is a Hallmark Christmas movie that shares this title, yeah. but also... In a lot of ways, this mm-hmm. book and movie, the the proper 2019 Let It Snow, they feel on par with the kind of Hallmark cheese that oh, we've totally. experienced. This is Hallmark cheese for teens. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, uh, which is actually one of the points that comes out very clearly when you look into the reviews for the film where people say it's very treacly and just kind of like YA rom-com yeah. to the max. Yeah. Yeah, okay, you you tell them what the movie's about. Or go through the cast. Or do whatever okay. it is you do. Yeah, we'll try this. <laughs> wow, thank you for that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just so annoyed. I really want to... I don't understand why this was an adaptation. Like, I don't understand why they bothered adapting the source material. No. And it's, like, extremely frustrating to me. I can tell you why. I feel like we can speculate pretty easily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's called IP, and yeah. there's money to be made. Yeah, I know, I know. So 2019's Let It Snow is directed by Luke Snellen, and it is written by a trio of screenwriters, Lauren Solon, Victoria Strauss, and Kay Cannon. And if that final name sounds familiar, as it did to me, it's that she is the screenwriter behind the Pitch Perfect movies. Oh! So this movie has no excuse. No, there's no excuse. (laughs) Uh, really, I think the big takeaway from this movie is the cast. And it's actually another one of the things that comes out when you look at the reviews is everybody says, well, the movie itself is kind of garbage, but this cast is actually quite good. Yeah. And I actually think they are all good in what they have been given, but they have not been given much. No, no, it's there's nothing for them to film. do. film. Yes. Okay, so I've included the title that they are better known for in advance of their names. So just to give you an idea of the star wattage of YA actors we're working with, we've got Dora and the Lost City of Gold's Isabella Merced as Julie. Not Jubilee. Julie. Yeah, yeah, important. It's the start of many changes, but also none at all. Yep. 
We've got Into the Spider-Verse, Shamik Moore as Stuart, who in this version is not Jewish. He is not from Graceville. He is a megastar pop singer Mm -hmm. who is black. Mm -hmm. And he just happens to be kind of hiding away from his fame for the holidays. Yeah. We've got Dumplin's Odea Rush as Addie. And she is just as insufferable as she is in the book. I... She looks in this role. I didn't realize she was in Dumplin'. I honestly have no memory of her in that movie. She's the best friend. She's also the female lead in The Giver. She's way better in both of those. Yes. In this movie, she is performing it like a discount Vanessa Hudgen. (laughs) Ouch. I mean, but true. Very accurate, though. Yeah, I mean, if I didn't recognize her from these other things, I would just be like, who is this insufferable person? Yeah, yeah, no. The only warmth that comes out of her is because she is Odea Rush, and I like her from these other things, even though, yeah, to be fair, Dumplin' is the only good thing that we've seen her in. Mm. Hmm. Because her character in The Giver is not good. No. She's doing what she can again. She's better in that. She's very bad in this. Go on. So he's not a character at all, but Jeb is still in this movie, but he appears only briefly because instead of the storyline being that she cheated on him and they broke up and she's desperate to get him back, in this movie, Addie is a narcissist who constantly thinks that her boyfriend is cheating on her, Mm -hmm. except he actually is cheating on her, potentially. Mm -hmm. It's Mm. unclear. Completely unclear. But the actor who plays Jeb in the film is named Mason Gooding. I thought I recognized him, but I don't. But when I looked him up, it turns out that he will be playing the Andrew role in the Love, Simon TV show, which oh, will wow. be coming next year. Okay. So I just wanted to highlight him. He's King of the streaming services. not a character. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. We've also got Santa Claudia Diet's Liv Hewson as Dory. And her love interest is played by Anna Akana as Carrie. So she's one of the cheerleaders. So Dory is actually a main character in this Mm -hmm. adaptation, which I think is one of the few improvements that the film makes on the book. Mm -hmm. Dory's a fully fleshed out character. She is an out and proud lesbian and she has had a great date with Carrie. And Carrie is closeted and a member of the cheerleading team Mm -hmm. who's hanging out at the Waffle House. Mm Mm-hmm. We've got the descendants Mitchell Hope as Tobin. Didn't know him. Didn't like him. Yeah, no. I thought he was just beyond bland and generic. He's a very generic white boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, he showed up on screen and I just crossed out the bingo slot. <laughs> and then he is matched with Chilling Adventures of Sabrina's Kunin Shipka as the Duke slash Angie. And this is the biggest miscast of the film for me. I did not buy for an instant that she is a tomboy who likes the Ramones, who is too cool for school. She just comes across as a bit of a cold fish. Yep. It's not well done. And the two of them don't have any chemistry together whatsoever. No, no, no. no. I didn't even get the impression that they're friends. No, not And they're meant to be lifelong best friends. (laughs) And also they are both, they both participate in an egregious, egregious singing for no reason scene in this film. 
Mm-hmm. egregious and they're really bad singers oh. and it goes on forever and then they threatened to sing a second song and i was like whoa yeah no no <laughs> you do not need to pad this rum time let it snow no you do not absolutely not so the third member of their storyline because it's meant to be a love triangle where the duke is potentially interested in jp so jp mm-hmm. in the book the three of them are thick as thieves friends mm-hmm. along with keon And in the film, JP is just some college guy that Tobin is worried that Duke has feelings for. He is played by Matthew Nazca. And I kept waiting for the reveal that JP is a big old gay. Yeah. Because the gaydar was off the charts for me with this character. And it never happens well there's a very odd scene even just in terms of his his own character arc so i wasn't expecting him to to be gay i was really expecting him to be like the older because he's he's an old he's in college and he's like the older friend and i was expecting him to be like hey you know angie you're super cute and i really enjoy your company but like obviously tobin's in love with you because there's this Mm -hmm. scene where the two of them are playing piano and singing and it's awful (laughs) Also, JP's not Korean anymore in the film version, by the way. Nope. JP's watching them sing together, and he has this, like, knowing smile on his face. Yeah. Which then has zero follow-through. No. He spends the entire movie complimenting Tobin, telling him that he thinks he's a great guy, you know, and Tobin is desperate to try to play along because he's doing that masculine bro thing that movies like to make wimpy guys do where they're like oh i can hang with this threatening romantic rival by showing that i can play broomstick is that what they play is that a thing is that a real thing no idea what you're talking about (laughs) remember they go to the ice house and they play some sport so that we can watch tobin get beat up a bunch of times oh yeah they called it broom hockey i didn't know if that was real i yeah listeners let us know yeah is that a real thing it seems like it might be but it also just is a scene that exists for no reason. Yeah. I did not like anything about this storyline. So this is the John Green portion of the book. And this is still where a lot of the kinetic energy of the film is meant mm-hmm. to come from. There's still a car chase. There is still an action scene with broomstick. And then it just devolves into the singing at the church. Mm-hmm. And it has so little energy and there's no chemistry between these leads so every mm-hmm. time they show up you're just like well, who could care okay i guess we're spending more time with these people <laughs> yeah yeah so in addition to addy being insufferable you've now got these two sucking mm-hmm. up screen time and it's not good no okay and then rounding out the cast we've got every day's jacob batalon as keon and he oh, yeah. in this he just works at the Waffle House and he wants to be a DJ. So he's organizing a party, which is obviously where all the stories will coalesce because we don't have Starbucks in the film. And it's weird because, so in the book, the fact that they're allowed to have this raucous night at the Waffle House is explained by the fact that the town is literally shut down by the snow and no mm-hmm. one is getting anywhere anyway. And it's only really intrepid teenagers who don't, care enough about their safety who are going places yeah they're willing to sacrifice their safety to get to a party to go and see their friends to just get out but in the film there's a light dusting of snow oh these characters are doing their best to talk up this storm of the century (laughs) and you're looking around and it's maybe a centimeter of snow on the ground and then cgi fakery around their faces yeah it's so wholly unconvincing at one point 
Julian Stewart go sledding yeah. and the entire hill is filled with families out there and you're like so the train stopped because of the snow yeah but there's just families out enjoying people everything. driving like, around and every scene inside the waffle house you can see people walking back and forth in front of the waffle house on the sidewalk mm-hmm. it's very odd I'm not sure what is happening weather-wise but it's very confusing Oh, this is a film made by people who have literally never experienced snow. So it's set in Illinois in this version, inexplicably relocated to Illinois, like for no reason. Tax breaks from Illinois. <laughs> well, except that it was shot in Ontario. Of course. It was shot in Southern Ontario in like February. In Southern Ontario in February, you may well have to invent some snow depending on the year, right? And mm-hmm. so they, I don't know, I don't understand anything about it by relocating it to illinois you make the snowstorm less significant by not having enough snow you make the context around snow storm confusing and those two things together make it just i don't understand this would be like i don't know five centimeters of snow is what it looks like is falling yeah it would be minor inconvenience to get around nothing would be closed people would be out and about with their daily lives absolutely so two more members of the cast. Miles oh Robbins is Billy, the Waffle House manager. And Keon doesn't get a romantic storyline, but he does have this kind of fun relationship, like friendship with yeah. uh, the other guy who works there. And yeah. I say this mostly just because Miles Robbins is Tim Robbins' son. Oh, I mean, he hasn't had a really significant career, but he's in a really good independent horror film that just came out called Daniel Isn't Real, where a person's childhood best friend becomes murderous. And mm. uh, I just wanted to highlight that because he's he's kind of fun in this movie, and then he's in a terrifying horror film where he's actually really good. So. Oh, really? Okay, cool. Yeah. Not a lot of overlap between that and this. And then the final member is, as you mentioned, Joan Cusack as the tinfoil woman who has been gender flipped for no discernible reason because Just this is to get not Joan a character. Cusack. It's not a yeah. character. It, it's not a character, but also they weirdly give her the role of being the film's narrator, which it doesn't need. So she ends up framing the whole film, like the opening. There's mm-hmm. an opening like diatribe about the snow. and Blah. Yeah. And then there's like a closing diatribe that's also about the snow. Blah. And then it literally... <laughs> They literally end the film with Joan Cusack saying, so you gotta let it, let snow. it snow. Just kill me in my sleep. I would obviously just rather be murdered. <laughs> Some people have suggested that this is aping John Hughes films and trying to bring it back into that vein of like the magic that happens when you get people who might not normally interact all together and they can learn life lessons over a short period of time. And all you have to do is kind of submit to the magic of the season so in that way i was kind of like all right yeah it's cheesy but it makes sense but the problem is is that it's so saccharine yep john hughes had a really good balance like he had a nose for tone and how to make the ridiculous go down and this just feels like medicine yes this is not candy this is medicine yep (laughs) yep so surprisingly enough this is 87 percent fresh on rotten tomatoes well okay yeah, not a ton of reviews because this is a direct-to-Netflix and not a ton of people paid attention to it when it came out in early November, but... I think they timed it really strangely. Like, this is the kind of thing that you should drop during the Christmas holidays. Well, Brenna, if we go back to Hallmark, 
they start doing this stuff immediately after uh, Halloween. I know, but Hallmark has a brand that people are waiting for. Nobody was waiting for this movie. Like, to me, if they had done, like, a splashy launch on, like, December 15th, and we're like, look, it's a Christmas movie involving a John Green. Ah!" I feel like that would have been more oomph than what it ended up with, which was kind of a, like, people talked about it really briefly on Twitter for, like, five minutes, and then it went, like, Yeah, well, you have to remember that they did have their Vanessa Hudgens Christmas movie as well as their Rose MacGyver Christmas Prince baby marriage movie that I think they were probably a bit more invested in. They had an actual Vanessa Hudgens movie and this discount Vanessa Hudgens movie? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. The Vanessa Hudgens one is where she travels in time and she meets a romantic prince. (laughs) Oh, is that the Christmas night or something? You betcha. Oh, yeah, I'm absolutely not going to watch that. Yeah, you say that now. No, I definitely won't. Imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the thing. This feels like a dump. You mentioned why would they make this, and I think it's called, you nailed it, they purchased the rights to this when John Green was super hot and The Fault in Our Stars was making bang. They literally bought this, they bought the rights to this collection in 2014, which was the year that The Fault in Our Stars came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is also when we saw the rights for Looking for Alaska go and all these things. So I think everybody just said, gobble up anything you can that's John Green related. Yep. And then they realized, ah, crap. We got to actually do something with this if we're going to make some money off of it. And Netflix is really, it used to be synonymous with quality mm-hmm. and prestige and like things that you couldn't get anywhere else. And now, particularly their movies, are being associated with things that are just getting dumped that could never go theatrical. Like, I can't imagine mm-hmm. that this movie would come out theatrically and make any money at all. No. But on Netflix, it's just another its just another addition to their roster, like their deep well of generic movies. And they managed to cast half of the people who already have Netflix-related contracts. Yeah. So you've got your Kernan Shipka, you've got your uh, Odea Rush, you know, all the people who are already working with Netflix, they just call them in and say, hi, we're going to need you to show up in this terrible movie that we've got. Yeah. And you literally have to or we're not renewing your other show. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. <laughs> in the case of Santa Clarita Diet's Liv Houston, they already did that. Oh. <laughs> she might have filmed this before they canceled Santa Clarita Diet this summer, though. She did then because this was filmed in February and March of last year. There you go. There are parts of it I really like. I like Julie's storyline. Yes. I don't love the Stuart part because I just, I feel like we've seen that I'm a star who just wants to be treated like a normal person story mm-hmm. a lot. But I quite like Julie's, her mom is an immigrant and on her own. She's got her dad with her. They have this sort of really neat dynamic. She's ill and Julie doesn't really know how to negotiate her own adult independence. Like mm-hmm. this is all created for the film. None of this is in the film, obvi- in, yeah. in the book, obviously. No. Um, and it's really quite lovely. That family scene where they're all dancing is really quite charming. That was my absolute favorite scene. Yeah, absolutely. So there's that moment. And I really like the recasting of Dory as a protagonist in her own life. I like that Dory gets to have a love story. I get like that it's a queer love story. I want to like that, but I can't because anyone with half a brain is going to recognize when you go up and you make an ass of yourself yeah. in front of the person that you like and all of their friends and the person is not responding to your well, obvious yeah. romantic overtures. Like as a queer person and as someone who is as knowledgeable as this, like she is out and proud. Like that is a stated fact in this movie 
if she did that and got nothing back, you immediately know this person is not out. Well, this is what I was going to say is that I, I, um, there's no payoff to that relationship because no. the cheerleader coming outside and being like, oh, actually, I'm going to be out right now. Let's kiss is not satisfying because you don't mm-hmm. you don't leave that storyline being like Dory's going to be looked after like Dory's in a healthy relationship where her needs are going to be met you you no. don't leave that storyline that way so to me it is as unsatisfying for Dory as the book's storyline is for Jeb because you're mm-hmm. like okay well this person is making a surface assertion about their ability to change but not actually proving it in any meaningful way yeah absolutely I mean, one of the problems with a romantic comedy is this idea that everything will be fine as long as these people get to kiss before the credits roll. And it's particularly egregious when we're talking about teenagers yes, because it is. we know the nature of teen relationships. Yes. Most of them do not last. They are not in it for the long run. Nope. So in this particular case, to handle it so flimsily like Mm -hmm. the idea that all you have to do is connect with somebody and then have your kiss by the end everything will be okay Mm -hmm. (sighs) even if you go along with the magic of the season it just doesn't it doesn't work it's not enough no and i also feel like the film didn't do very much setup work Mm -mm. i will confess that it as is my custom i watched it in two sittings and the first sitting like I was paying attention and everything, but I, <laughs> at the end of the first sitting, I watched about half an hour the first day and then an hour the next day. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the first half hour, I actually couldn't remember why they were on a train in the first place. Like mm-hmm. I don't, I don't remember what the setup was for that at all. And then the flip is that when I got to the end of my second setting, sitting, I couldn't remember why they were buying a pig. That context had completely eluded me. Oh, there is no context for why okay, they're good. buying a pig. It's okay, literally Dory is driving to work and Addie is acting the fool, as yeah, always. Yeah, I remember that scene. And then I think there's just a reference to the pig because well, they there's drive just a pig by in the, the store. pet store. They dri- okay, so that is all It's it only is? in there because it's in the book, but it doesn't make any sense in the film. So for Addie to then just pick up this pig and deliver it at the end and then also leave it on the ground in a party full of people. Yeah, I didn't love that. There's a suggestion. She makes eyes with JP as though they're going to suddenly get together. And you're just like, no, none of this. No. Or none of this. Well, this is the thing, right? So because of the way I watch movies these days, I tend to assume that if I don't catch something, it's on me. Like, I don't assume it's the movie. But there were so many of them in this film that I was like, oh, this might not be me. There's just so much contextual stuff that's lost. And like, one of the things I actually really like about the, um, basically one of the very few things I like about the Lauren Miracle story is she does a good job of how to adopt a pet at the holidays right mm-hmm. so like the whole storyline in that in the book is that oh god what's her name tegan yes, has always tegan. wanted a pig but her parents are like you can't have pig like pigs are gigantic and then she learns about teacup pigs and she finds an actual reputable breeder and she has this big like come to jesus conversation with her parents about it and she buys all the supplies and she shows that she can be responsible and they give in and luckily her friends had already put a deposit on the last piglet in this litter like they're very explicit about like these are the rules when you adopt a pet for another person like mm-hmm. make sure all your ducks are in a row and then in the film it's just like like, yo, sup, bought you this pig, left it on this floor. 
yeah, there isn't even any clear indication that Dory wants the pig outside from the no. line when she's driving by the pet store. And you're just like, is this a part of your character? Because it doesn't ever come up in any other capacity. Whereas in the book, Tegan is obsessed with pigs like from infancy. She has pig figures. Yeah, it's her only defining trait It's in the book. literally her only characteristic, so. Yeah. Yeah, I think overall the film just doesn't do the work. Like, I think that's true in pretty much every storyline. So let's talk about this, because I did recognize that while this is, I suggested that this is our flimsiest pick we've ever done, it's also the first time that we've ever done a story like this. So we've never done a book that is broken up into no, novellas or like an anthology kind of format. And then, of course, the movie doesn't adapt it that way. No. So I'm interested to have the conversation with you. What do you think the differences are between a traditional novel by one person compared to a three novella book? See, we, the first time we ever talked about this was on our Christmas episode last year. We did a roundup of like Christmassy reads and watches, right? Mm -hmm. And I brought this one up. I hadn't read it in a few years. I try to go back to see my parents every Christmas because I live far away and I miss them. And a few years ago, I was going through a whole bunch of stuff at work and I was too burnt out. I could not like conceive of the idea of traveling. It was like, it was a very not great time for me. Okay. And I stayed home that Christmas and I bought this book and I like curled up in a you chair <laughs> and I read the whole thing with like a big glass of Riesling and like it was good like it was a very soft and gentle read at a time when I needed a soft and gentle read okay. but I remembered hating the last story that was all I remembered and when we talked about it on the show I had said like my problem with collections like this is that it's very rarely even right mm -hmm. and it's yep. a particular mistake I think when you put the weakest story last because yeah. like the John Green story works if you like John Green, right? And at the time yep. in my life when I first picked up this collection, I loved John Green and I was not interested in talking about problems. Um, it's before I ruined John Green. Before you, you wrecked him for me? No, I was. I had already taught him for long enough that I was, had already wrecked him for myself in many ways. But I still found that story, even reading it this time, I still found that story fully enjoyable. Like I can look over, because I'm so used to the tropes of John Green that it doesn't necessarily detract from like the fun of the caper. Sure. But the last story is... I find so egregiously bad. Like it's static and it, we've talked about all this. So mm -hmm. I think that you always run a risk when you build a collection like this, that if you're not really careful, you know how when you teach students how to write an essay and you're like, so when you're deciding where to put your points, you should put your weakest argument either first or second, but not last, because if your weakest argument is last, that's what your reader leaves with, right? Mm -hmm. And don't do that. And it's kind of the same thing in this book. I was hopeful when I saw that the adaptation had a single director because I thought that they would be bringing the storylines together. And I, I think there is a way to tell this story as a very much a love actually for teens, like where the, yeah. the stories interweave a little bit more clearly and where each character, like for all its problems that we see, especially as modern audiences, love actually is a pretty great study in characterization, right? Like each one of those people for better or for worse, <laughs> has motivations of their own. You know why they're doing what they're doing, right? Mm -hmm. That is missing from this. So when you try to interweave all of these character stories, but they're all kind of messy, I feel like it just makes a big mess. And I don't know if it would have been better to have like a little anthology film with like three short films, or I don't know. I honestly, maybe this book isn't really all that adaptable. I don't know what to tell you. I don't think it's successful as a book structure, and I think it's even less successful as a film structure here. 
Yeah. I mean, the benefit of the film is that you can rest on the personality of the actors. So I do feel like they put a lot of effort into casting likable, Mm -hmm. mostly attractive, Mm -hmm. you know, like conventionally attractive. They made the effort to diversify all these things that we talk about in modern adaptations from the last couple of years. So they Mm -hmm. they did the work there. Mm -hmm. But then the scripting... You know, as always, the script Mm -hmm. is a little bit janky. Mm -hmm. And I don't think they give these characters enough stakes. Like when you're reading a book and it's only 90 to 100 pages for a short story, if there isn't much to it, that's okay. Yeah. Because you're going to read it in like a couple of hours at the most. Yeah. When you're watching this movie and you realize like, oh, the only thing that is driving this entire plot is the desire to get this person to kiss this other person. Yep. And that's like the all-consuming bit for every single one of these dozens of characters. Yep. It's just not enough to hang a story on. Yep. They needed to have something more. And because the storm itself is so fabricated <laughs> and unbelievable. And Again, I feel like no I'm, I hope that we're not just saying that as Canadians who experience, like we've had a lot of experience with snow. I don't know if people who have never seen snow or interacted with it directly, if they look at this and they're like, yeah, this is what movie snow looks like. I buy it, whatever. Joel, they're out in this quote unquote storm of the century in like jean jackets and not like, you know, like teens wear jean jackets kind of way in a like they're not even shivering kind of way. Yeah, like the scene where Tobin is just hanging out in his car waiting yes. for the tinfoil yeah, lady to come and tow him. You can't do that. You'll die. <laughs> he would die of hypothermia <laughs> if the storm was as bad as they're actually making it out to be. Well, and that's the thing, like in the book when the car gets stuck, it's Angie, it's the Duke's brilliance to be like, oh, actually, no, this car is completely encased in snow. We have to get out like carbon monoxide, like turn the car off, open the window mm-hmm. and get out. And in this, he's just like, I'm gonna lie here in my car in the snow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's, uh, so there's, there's just a lot of not greatness in this movie as a result of that. I do want listeners to let us know, by the way, I know we have listeners in much sunnier climes than where either of us live. I would very much like to know if the snow was convincing to you. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Hashtag HKHS pod. Did you find the snow convincing in Let It yeah. Snow? <laughs> yeah. We did not. <laughs> we did not. I think the thing that worked the best for me is musical sequences. This film almost leans into it a little bit too much Mm -hmm. at times where it feels like we came up with a soundtrack of really good pop songs. I really enjoy the soundtrack. we want to start to work sequences around those. Yep. Particularly as you get towards the end where everybody's actually finally starting to come together in Mac because the understandings have been overcome and so on. It's like, sound cute, sound cute, sound cute. (laughs) But it is good, right? Like it's, it's, I think it's one of those soundtracks that if you are a teen in 2019, I am suspecting that the soundtrack will have great nostalgic factor for you 10 years from now. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. such We've an of the moment Leachers, soundtrack. Slow Club, Borns, uh, Georgia, Leaky Lee. Like, I was going through it and I'm like, okay, the old person in me recognizes only about half of these songs, but, you know, they clap, they bang, as the kids say these days. Joe. Oh, that's cute. But it it works. It works in the way that the musicality in a lot of other films have worked for us, right? You know what I was going to say that is even less cool? Hmm. I was going to say it's a bop, Joe. It's a bop. Oh, dear. dear. (laughs) It's funny. I just, so I just corrected myself. I'm not sure if Joe is going to leave it in or not, but I described something as lame and then I corrected myself to say that it is 
not cool. Can we take a second to talk about the language in the book a little bit? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't sure if you wanted to talk about it because I feel like it's a conversation we've had so frequently. Yeah. Well, I just want to I just want to double back to it because on Twitter this morning, I was talking with somebody about it. I couldn't sleep last night and I was talking with one of our European listeners about the book. And I I'm fine. I'm worried, actually, that we are reading so much stuff from like the 2000s that I am anesthetizing myself to some of this language again. Like, mm. it seems like it's been coming up so frequently. So like we have an R word drop. We have yep. a spaz drop. We have a lame drop. Like this is like. It's ableist language. I try really hard and correct myself often because ableism is incredibly ingrained in our society. I try really hard not to use that language. And I, uh, it's fascinating to me that as recently as 2008, it's just everywhere. I will give Maureen Johnson full props. There's nothing like that in her novella. But the mm -hmm. other two, it's like it's like all over the place. And yep. uh, it's fascinating to me because those are both, both John Green and Lauren Miracle. Miracle are writers who are very much part of the white writers visibly making space for other folks in the conversation kind of uh, YA okay. writers and yet like anyone else they are fallible mm -hmm. and anyway yeah no I don't want to belabor the point because we have talked about it so much but it is fascinating to me I can't get over how much the culture has moved and how uh, I just um I really noticed it. And also I'm worried by how much I was just kind of like, Mer, like, I, of course that's in it. It's a book from 2008. Yeah. I really have to attend to that in my own reading. Yeah. I thought that this book was actually from later, which is part of the reason that I came down very hard when I was reading the John Green part, because mm. I was just like, has this man learned nothing? <laughs> I thought it was from 2011. Oh, Maybe gosh. it was that my, mine might've been like a second or third printing yeah, and this thing gets printed for, it gets newly printed literally every Christmas, so. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, because it it's a license to print money. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, I had the same reaction when I saw it, particularly with the R word, because I just feel like it just never pops up nowadays. So nope. to see it just sort of sitting there so egregiously on the page, all I could think of was, no, yeah. we don't do this. Nope. I actually had an incident with my mom I went to visit my parents a couple of weeks ago and it's part of my mom's everyday language. Mm. And I had like, every time she did it, I was like, mom, no. We're not doing that anymore. I verbally kind of wrist slapped her every time. And she was like, I'm sorry. Like, it's just it, I'm like, I'm not even thinking about it. I don't mean it that way. And I was like, then good. Stop mm. saying it. Yeah. You of all people should know better than this. Come on. Well, it's, it's, you have to... You have to call it out when you hear it because, it, like, she didn't even know she was saying it. And you have to retrain it in your own language. You have to decide. Yeah. Like, do you remember when we were training as facilitators back in our CIE days, our boss, she was the first person I'd ever heard tell me not to say that word. Mm -hmm. The very first, that was my, 2001, that was my first interaction with the idea that, like, maybe you shouldn't use the R word casually. Yep. And she trained us to be like, when you hear yourself going about to say it, say ridiculous. And it's, it has worked. Like that is my, that was my go-to. I now say the word ridiculous probably more than the average bear, but, <laughs> but it worked. And it was like, it was like very deliberately retraining my brain to not jump to an ableist slur when that's not what I meant. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's labor. 
It is, but it's labor worth doing. Oh, totally. No, don't I say this about a bunch of other things as well, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, but it's interesting. And there's a conversation around ableist language on an episode of uh, Hannah McGregor's Secret Feminist Agenda podcast. And one of the things that she pointed out is like, it's been relatively straightforward to strike racist language and sexist language and, you know, cis-sexist language from her speech, but that we live in a society that is profoundly ableist and not wrestling with mm-hmm. ableism like in any kind of public way. And being called out on that is a valuable part of having a listening audience because you learn. Mm-hmm. But also it's like it's something that you, you have to be thinking about all the time. Like if you are committing to your language being inclusive, commit to it, right? Right. I would like to work on stripping words like stupid out of my vocabulary because they're not that useful. You know what I mean? And like crazy and the ca- those kind of casual, but it's actually really hard. And I'm not saying that like, it's hard, don't make me do it. I'm saying like, I'm trying genuinely. Yeah. yeah. Well, I recognize I, I said crazy when I talked about the tinfoil lady mm-hmm. earlier. And I, as I was saying it, I was thinking, mm, is that what you really want to say? Mm-hmm. Is that the statement you really want to make? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I apologize for saying that. Language is a negotiation and and cultural norms change over time and making choices with the language that you choose. Good work, Brenna, at words. It says something about how you want to communicate. And Mm -hmm. I think it should always be in negotiation as you learn more, right? Hopefully. Yeah. 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 Perhaps this is a a New Year's resolution that we can make for ourselves. Continue fighting the good fight about changing the way that we use language and try to improve ourselves. Totally. So uh, can I take you to the bingo place? Absolutely. Okay. Bingo! Not a good bingo. So for the final time in 2019, our last time using this board, what, uh, what YA bingo do you have? Okay, Joe. I've got musicality. Yes. Perfect date. Yes. Mediocre white boys. Yes. Uh, Tobin, come through. Absentee adults. Yep. Uh, stunt casting, both youth and adults. Like, Joan Cusack is there for the olds, like us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. CGI for the snow. I have that as well, yes. Uh, I think that's everything I have. Did you have others? I've got unlikely friendships because yes. we've got people who maybe normally wouldn't be interacting. Definitely. I've got a little bit of sexual awakening if you want to think about Dory's oh, yeah. storyline in the film. Yep, and also um, I think Tobin's realization about... The Duke. The Duke. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that's really all I had because you could make the argument do bad for the greater good if you favor the party gods in the book where they're <laughs> stealing the keg. Oh, right. Forgot about them. But uh, even that is a bit of a, just yeah. a touch of a stretch, but I'll allow it. <laughs> good, do it. okay so not bad all things considered this is our last regular sode of 2019 yes it is brenda (laughs) 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 yeah so this is the main event but we actually will be back before the end of the year so as we've teased we have a couple of mini sodes that are going to be dropping next week and one of them we're going to be doing a roundup of the last year. So talking a bit about our favorite episodes of the podcast and some of our favorite books that we've done. 
And then we also have a binge-worthy episode. So if you have a little bit of time off over the holidays, we're going to give you things that we think you might want to check out. We're going to tell you what we're going to try to check out. Mm -hmm. And as we teased last week, Brenna has been hugely... I fear for how much free time you seem to think you're going to have <laughs> over these here holidays, ma'am. Oh, yeah. No, I'm absolutely going to fail. Uh, and then the week after, we've got a forecast episode for you where we're looking ahead to what's to come in 2020. Well, just January because we, oh, yeah, we decided right. to be less ambitious and just acknowledge that there's so much content coming out, we can only do it a month in advance. Yes, you're totally right. I forgot. And then you'll have your first, uh, so in two weeks, you'll have your first regular sewed. No, three weeks. What did I say? Two weeks. In three weeks, you'll have your first regular sode of 2020. Mm-hmm. And I think we've teased it like a dozen times, but I'm going to tease it again because we're finally doing Anna Green Gables. Ah! Yes. Very exciting. So, yeah, basically, this isn't goodbye. We're mm-hmm. still <laughs> delivering weekly content to you. Yep. We're just taking a break from recording for a little bit. Yeah. This is goodbye for you and I for the rest mm-hmm. of the year. And a... I guess... Have a lovely holidays, everybody, whatever denomination you are. And hopefully this time of year is good for you. If it's not, seek out comfort in the people Mm -hmm. that you love who care about you. Don't feel like you're alone. The holidays are really tough for people. The holidays are really tough for people. And, you know, Netflix is there. That's what I keep telling myself. When things get super stressful, I can always binge something. You've got Netflix, you've got Disney Plus, you've got, you know, dig into that VHS collection from childhood, hit up your local library and just see what's on the shelf. Treat yourself. Give yourself something nice. And you know, if you are looking for a cozy read, you could do worse than Anne of Green Gables and you can meet us back here in three weeks to talk about it. Nicely done. I know, right? I'm like a professional podcaster. (laughs) (laughs) It's only taken us a year and a half to figure (laughs) our crap out. Until next time, have a happy holiday or just a great end of December. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. And we will see you on the page. And we will see you on the screen. Let it snow. Oh, God, no. (laughs) 